from a bar mitzvah at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem to a temple procession in Taipei. The people of our world are passionate about their beliefs. Are you listening? Tune in to the sounds of your world on Radio Taiwan International. Hello and welcome to Radio Taiwan International. I am Natalie So. Up this hour, we have Taiwan Today with a top uh, expert on Taiwan and uh, China, John Tassig, about the U.S.-China trade war. And then a piece of the live uh, performance scene for you on Live from Taipei. But first, join us on Here in Taiwan. Welcome to Here in Taiwan. It's Friday, December 14th, and in the studio we have Shirley Lin. Hello. Jake Chen. Hello. And I am Natalie So. We'll be talking about Taiwan's top search terms on Google this year. Also, how much an eating champion in Taiwan can eat. And an interesting way to pay off debt. And the latest use of drones in Taiwan. Those stories and more next. Okay, so what have you guys been searching for on Google? Myself, uh, just to feel good. No, yeah. <laughs> Jake Chen. I've actually, I've actually never searched myself. Um, <laughs> yeah, what have you been searching? Um, I think mostly news, you know, while we're writing. World so. Cup? Uh, a, lot of, a lot of NBA stuff, that's true. Yeah, now that you mentioned. Oh, that's different though. Not, yeah, not, not NBA, World Cup. Uh, well, that was the number one search thing. Not really? only in Taiwan, but I think around the world. Oh, okay. Oh, I wouldn't be surprised. So that was like, what, 3.5 billion people watching it mm. at once. So they were also Googling it. And um, do you guys want to have a guess of any of the, the other top searches in Taiwan? So this is the top uh, number of terms. search terms in the past year. In Taiwan, yeah, coming Ooh. out of Taiwan. Ooh, election? Yeah, election. Election-related. Election we have um, referendums, mm. Central mm. Election Commission. Wow. So that's because uh, our most recent election in the end of November, midterm elections, um, the head of the Central Election Commission uh, resigned. Yeah, because many said there were issues throughout yeah, the process. Yeah, and because there was a lot of um, you know long lines, which people said it would affect elections. There were referendums caused a lot of long lines, so um, it wasn't organized that well. Mm. Um, oh, yeah, we have quite a few related to the election, actually. Vote counting is number 10, I guess mm -hmm. because of the recent vote count, re recount. Recount, yeah. For Taipei mayor. Yeah. And uh, turns out Taipei mayor is still the Taipei mayor. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> he has even more votes than the first time around. That's underwhelming. <laughs> also, uh, a new star politician. Can you guys guess who that is? Oh, oh, the oh, uh, gentleman oh, uh, in Han Guoyu. Han Guoyu. Yes. Han Guoyu yeah. in Kaohsiung. Kaohsiung. So he's a new star of the KMT. He's number eight mm. on the list. Okay. Um, Those are the more recent ones that we can think of. That's but, true. Oh, it's earlier in the year. I'm trying to think. I'm thinking so, about the same thing. Like so, an earthquake? The earth, you're right. Oh, okay. a good one. That's right, Shirley. So, um, well, let me tell you the rundown. Number one was the World Cup in mm. terms of soccer. And then... Uh, number two was a TV show called The Story of Yanxi Palace. Oh, I've heard of that one. You've heard of that one? That one got viral Yanting for... Yeah, it's like so one of... So, it's about the Qing Dynasty, set in the Qing Dynasty. Yeah. There's two, actually. Also one called uh, Royal Love in the Palace. So, there's two, like, soap opera type of uh, mm -hmm. shows that made the list. 
Yeah, the the <laughs> set watching these. <laughs> the design and the cinematography yeah. was like movie like. So cool. people, oh, yeah, I think really, I've heard of that. You heard of that one? Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. People are getting into the retro Qing Dynasty look now, like yeah, for Halloween yeah. and we had news of people like almost losing their eyesight just binge watching the whole thing on their phone. Are you serious? Yeah, it's not. I'm glad and, I didn't get into that. Uh, things like that are addicting. Yeah. Number three is was the earthquake. A very major earthquake in Hualien in uh, February. Earlier this year. And yep. then mm-hmm. um, four was a sports lottery. Oh, I never got into that. <laughs> and uh, number no, Yunchai. And then number five was the CEC, the Central Election Commission. Number six was the Royal Love in the Palace. Seven was referendums. Eight was Hangulyu. Number nine is Elta. It's a platform I think where you can watch um, the World Cup. It's a oh. web- website. Okay. I see. And then 10 was vote counting. So we're not really international-minded, are we? I mean, apart from one sports <laughs> event, like most major really? clicks. Really? Everything's related to something <laughs> like, in Taiwan. Local stuff, yeah. That's true. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is none of the searches from last year were on this year. Not even Pokemon, <laughs> which yeah. has been on it for many years. Uh, so anyways, many years. Uh, yes, that's what's going on uh, people's minds here in Taiwan. Tell us about a strange way of paying off your debt. Yeah, this is a little grudge going on. So what happens is, um, this is a court case that recently got resolved. Uh, Mr. Chen and uh, um, he's got into a consumer's dispute with uh, uh, Mr. Zhang. And the result is Chen owns Zhang 48,000 new Taiwan dollars. And um, he eventually uh, agreed to to uh, fall in line with the court verdict and pay the debt. But just to sort of rub it in, he brought a broken uh, suitcase. The suitcase, the the, roll, the wheels on the bottom was broken, and carrying get this forty eight thousand one dollar coins to Mister Zhang. And uh, yeah, so he deliberately made it difficult. And for they him. all fit into the suitcase. They all fit into the new uh, suitcase. Into the broken suitcase, weighing a total of eighteen point twenty four kilograms. Um, wow. So yeah, that's a heavy suitcase. So and and the wheels on the bottom was broken. So while carrying the case, <laughs> Mr. Zhang sort of uh, hurt himself. He scratched. I can imagine that makes it hard on himself too. He had, he had to get, get these one dollar bills changed and then bring them, bring them right, right to, yeah. the, to different banks and stuff. And then he was uh, so ticked off by you know the behavior. Clearly, was intentional. He sued Mr. Chen again. <laughs> Um, oh come on! Yeah, because he hurt his leg. He legitimately got injured. Uh, yeah, like he I don't said, think he can sue him for hurting he, his leg. For he he the couldn't $1 because he was rejected. So, <laughs> there, I guess, misery is our very brief entertainment. Okay. This is well, not the right give way. Give it a rest. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's Just funny. Clear the dead and then go on with life. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I decided to stop, you know, um, a collection of $1, uh, anti dollars coins at home because when it got really, really heavy, nobody in my family wanted to lug it to wherever to change it into dollar bills. So what I, do you I do? refused. Throw them out? No, I mean, I, I, finally, I was the one who lugged it to the bank, right? And oh. then um, got it. Yeah. And they were giving me the looks, you know. Um. <laughs> Actually, we have a collection of those too. So, what do you do? You just you just now, go to the bank. Oh, what do you do now? Now, mm-hmm. um, I'll go to the you know the mug where they you know the, my boys you know and my husband they they throw in my boy. Yeah, uh, they throw boy in all the coins. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I was gonna call my husband boy too. I get an impression. Get, he is a yeah, big you got boy, that. A big boy. I mean, gosh, you know, oh, they boy. just they don't. I mean, boys don't like guys don't like to carry around coins in the pocket, That's true. right? I live with three I, men. I, I, three. I have the biggest issue with that in Males. July. I could never understand that. She's like, what seems to be the issue? It's such a coins, you know. <laughs> 
yeah. So now I go to the mug every now and then and and Just pick up them? all the one dollar coins and bring it with me in my per, in my you know my wallet and just try to spend it during the day. Oh, mm. that's a way of doing it. I, yeah. yeah, I tell my I have it there. I said you guys can use those one dollars anytime you want. Yeah. <laughs> they refuse. Yeah, not my not the males in my family. Right, drones are becoming more popular in uh, different um, functions. Tell us about this. Yes, uh, we're talking about the Directorate General of Highways um, decided that next year they're going to start using uh, drones um, to maintain highways and inspect disaster-stricken areas. Well, they've actually been doing so when when there have been roads caused by damage caused by natural disasters and things like that. So this year, right in February, when Hualien had that magnitude six point four earthquake. So um, basically. It's also going to alleviate all the work that's done on foot, because you know in the past construction crew they would have to assess damage in disaster zones uh, on foot if the areas could not be reached by motor vehicles, and they had to walk recording their findings, and they walk on the average about two point five kilometers per hour mm. um, every day, I guess, and then uh, assessment can take like two to three days to complete. And the crews can be faced with risks of like landslides and aftershocks. Oh, wow. So Probably you know very. it's very dangerous. Now, if a drone is used, a drone can move at a speed of 108 kilometers per hour. They can climb the sky and allow us to observe changes in topography from 300 meters above the ground, which is something we could never, never do in the past. Now, last year, uh, the agency has been using drones um, over some highways because of um, disaster, natural disaster, and things like that. And, and the drones in the past year has covered a total distance of 320 kilometers. And then they dispatch drones of different sizes to conduct inspections. So uh, the drones can automatically fly on a course set by construction crew who, who can view topographical changes on large screens. So that makes it a lot easier, you know, instead of like sending humans, right, to these dangerous areas. So um, basically, these drones... They can assess damage to roadside slopes by comparing photographs taken by the drones with those taken by the Central Geological Survey and then turning them into 3D images. So it makes it easier to, to judge you know, how the condition is and everything like that. So they're going to um, start using these drones in maintenance of all the highways under the agency's jurisdiction uh, starting next year. And by the way, the agency has also installed rockfall alert systems which is good, you know, um, in different sections of highways because you then can alert cars of uh, rock falls. They've been able to identify 43 high-risk roadside slopes. Actually, the, the same system is going to be able to assess whether more rock fall alert systems need to be installed, you know, throughout all the highways, throughout the whole nation. So, well, it looks like a lot of things are going to be automated and makes it easier and uh, more safe. Right. That's much safer to use a drone than a human life, right? Yeah, yeah. definitely. But then I think drones, um, it depends. I mean, sometimes, what was it now? I mean, recently, oh, I, I remember. It was the um, the Far East Tone uh, phone company. They've come up with a, a driverless car, and they were, like, testing it. And this drone fell right right by the foot of, um, you know, the chairman of a Far East Tone company. But anyway, that, that can be dangerous. But you too. can't really control a drone all, all the time. Yeah, so anyway. At least they're taking on some of the hard work that people are doing, huh? Right. All right. 
Hey, Jake, tell us how much a human being in Taiwan can eat when pressured to. I, uh, I don't think she was pressured to. This Far is away a, when driven to. <laughs> right. I think she's very much driven. This is a, a eating champion. And, you know, apparently this is a thing now. Like, there, there are officially people from uh, China, uh, Japan, and South Korea, and it's taken off in Taiwan too, that broadcast themselves eating just insane quantity of stuff. Like, this is a tiny little lady you can see right here. This is her photo. She weighs only 46 kilograms. And what? she's, like, short and... She's and, the champ? She, yeah, she's short and, like, slender, wow. right? Wow. And uh, in the That's recent... Amazing. She uh, she's invited by different restaurants to, to sample their food into because she has a large online following. You know whatever she eats, people gets to watch that. So uh, the trade is that she gets to eat as much as possible. So the recent number is one hundred and twelve plates of stuff. In and what amount of time? I don't know how long it took, but uh, uh, let, let me it just. It was an eating contest. Um, it wasn't even an eating contest. It was just a live broadcast uh, promoted by a restaurant. And the oh, the oh, owner of the restaurant gosh. said, uh, you know, like, I, I had no idea. Did she, she almost, finish all the plates or she, just, like, tasted all the plates? She finished all the plates. What? Uh, okay, 30 plates of white uh, shrimps, 20 plates of chicken drums. Oh, chicken. Uh, yeah, chicken drums. 40 plates of bacon, 5 plates of chicken wings, 8 plates of dessert, 6... Uh, bottles of uh, orange juice. I'm full now. <laughs> I'm feeling gross. Yeah. <laughs> I can you like physically fit that, that into a human That is amazing. Yeah. Well, good for her. I'm glad that she's not obese or anything. Right. That's another amazing feat too. Yeah. She better watch her gut. Her yeah, yeah digestive really. system is different. She shouldn't yeah. do that all the time. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for joining us for here in Taiwan, and do stay tuned for Taiwan Today live from Taipei and Newsmakers. And we'll be back at the top of the hour for here in Taiwan. I'm Natalie So. I'm Shirley Lin. And I'm Jake Chen. We'll see ya. The Sound of the Amis Tribe on Radio Taiwan International. You're listening to Radio Taiwan International. If you have any comments or suggestions about our programs, you can email us at rti at rti.org.tw. Taiwan Today with Natalie So. Hello and welcome to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. I'm honored to have with me a renowned expert on Taiwan and China, Mr. John Tasik. He's the director of the Future Asia Project at the International Assessment and Strategy Center in Washington, D.C. He's been invited to Taiwan by the Taiwan Think Tank. And um, he's an expert on U.S.-China relations as well. Uh, most recently in U.S.-China relations, there's been a truce on this trade war, three-month truce. What do you take about this? What do you think is happening in U.S.-China relations with this deal? I always have this suspicion that there's something going on under the surface that we're not quite aware of. I'm sure and there I'm not is. sure that Washington <laughs> is aware of it, but there's an awful lot of interest, I think, in Washington and in, especially in Taipei 
and moving forward with a free trade agreement uh, with Taiwan. Really? And I think that Taiwan, and you can, you know, that's uh, this good is, news I, for I just Taiwan. Hear, I just hear this. And I think China is all of a sudden using this new opening and the ceasefire to see if they can get America's mind off of Taiwan and focus back on the benefits of of China. But this has to happen immediately. The Chinese, these Chinese concessions have to be hmm. resolved today. Today, Monday, like yeah, they, he had a long list. Yeah. I know Trump had a long list of all intellectual property and cyber theft and a long list of requests that he says they got to be barriers and, right, and um, high be settled by high tariffs on automobiles. Already, China sells forty thousand Buicks from Chinese factories across the Pacific Ocean into U.S. auto showrooms. Really, and that's forty thousand a year. We can't export that to to China. They they have a forty percent tariff. I think President Trump said, "Get rid of all of that tariff tomorrow," because that's a. Oh, I that, wish they do that to Taiwan. We have big well, tariffs here. <laughs> well, that's that's <laughs> but, it. Maybe, that's another issue. Um, but uh, I mean, the point is, is that I think this all has to take place in the next three months. There are certain demands that have to be met immediately. Over the next three months, we have to see a complete movement on. China's cyber attacks, China's technology theft, complete about face on half a dozen other economic and trade issues that that China has been pressuring American businesses with. And people say, well, look, you know, this is a 25% tariff on $200 billion worth of Chinese exports to the United States. But 25% tariff on $200 billion is $50 billion. And that $50 billion is less than the Chinese surplus, trade surplus, with the United States in September. Right. And it's, so $50 billion is, is peanuts really. as far as they're concerned. And the other way that the Chinese get around it, of course, is that they devalue the yuan. And by devaluing the yuan, they basically make up for the, the cost difference, the 25% cost difference. So they, it's, if, if the Trump administration does not see immediate changes in that, I think that by the end of the 90 days, it'll be over. So do you think, you, know, you had mentioned earlier that China is making concessions because they're afraid of a U.S. and Taiwan relations. Well, do you think that's a major factor or is just... Well, I don't I, This is, there's an old joke about, uh, you know, Poland in the F- Second World War when they had a conference on, scientific conference on elephants and the... Germans encyclopedia of the elephant and the British did the class structure of the ele- elephants and the French did the love and mating habits of the elephant and the Polish the Poles came up with the elephants and the Polish question which means it, it, every time I look at something I think of it in a Taiwan right, right. Is, we do of course we're is, in Taiwan this so. is US China <laughs> trade from a and Taiwan perspective. From a Taiwan perspective. Right. But I do see that Taiwan is a, is a factor in that, as, mm. as far as the Chinese are concerned. I don't know that, I mean, I haven't talked to people yet, but I don't know that, the, that Washington is quite putting the two together. Mm. But it's clear that in 1992, I think it was 1992, anyway, the early 90s, Taiwan had already finished, had signed on the dotted line for the working group for WTO entry. And China and the United States was also dealing with China. And China was hemming and hawing and stretching out the... And for years, we were trying to get the, Taiwan, the Chinese to, to fulfill the working group obligations. 
And uh, finally, in, in 2000, in the last year of the Clinton administration, the Clinton administration told China, well, regardless of whether you sign on the dotted line for WTO, we're going we're gonna to bring in Taipung Jinma, the tai, Taiwan Customs uh, Territory, and, uh, yeah. into the WTO, whether China's in or not. And China all of a sudden said, oh, we can resolve this. Our only concern is that we, we can do it as quickly as you want. Our only concern is that we get in before Taiwan. And so as soon as Ta- China signed on the dotted line and was part of the, U- of the WTO, within a day, Taiwan was a part of the WTO. So it seems that Taiwan um, plays this very special role in the relationship between U.S. and China. I mean, it's very sensitive on, on China's end. Would you call it, some people call it a bargaining chip or leverage? Or Can you describe the role that you think that Taiwan is playing in U.S.-China relations? This is a new phenomenon. For the last 40 years, the United States has consciously, and I, I know this because I was in the government, rejecting the use, eschewing the use of Taiwan as a bargaining chip really? with China. Mm-hmm. That we would never deal with Taiwan as a, in a bargaining situation with China. Um, there were a couple of minor incidents uh, in the um, 80s where China was getting very upset about um, uh, our arms sales to Taiwan. The U.S. then said, well, I'll tell you what, we will open up our, we'll expand arms transfers to China. How do you feel about that? And once we started opening up arms transfers, or at least uh, defense transfers uh, of uh, equipment and technology to China in the early 80s, the Chinese didn't raise Taiwan anymore. We, we went through and, and completed a number of significant arms deals with Taiwan. But aside from that, we the U.S. government is has rejected the idea of using Taiwan as a bargaining chip. The Trump administration has come in, and President Trump himself, I assume it's President Trump, because nobody else in the government, maybe uh, Dr. Navarro or Ambassador Lighthizer, uh, sees it differently. And I'm sure that uh, Ambassador Bolton sees this differently. But President Trump says, we have this leverage. Why don't we use it with China? President Trump over the last year, last year and a half, has realized that whenever he uses the uses Taiwan, <laughs> he gets what he wants from the Chinese. <laughs> the problem mm. that he's facing now is that when he gets what he wants from the Chinese, after six or seven months, the Chinese renege on it or they've forgotten what they've promised or whatever. Ah. So this whole deal with, uh, you know, the, the President Tsai Ing-wen called Pre- President Trump to congratulate his president-elect Trump to congratulate him on his election, the Chinese got all upset about it. And uh, President Trump wrote a tweet. He said, well, we, over the last 10 years, we've purchased, the, the, the Taiwanese have purchased $14 billion in, in arms from the United States. Why can't I talk to the president of Taiwan on the phone? It seems perfectly... And, it was, and he said, president of Taiwan. <laughs> well, he, uh, he, the, uh, the other thing is that right after that, the Chinese um, harassed our naval ships in the South China Sea, cutting a, a sonar a drone from one of our destroyers, and then pretending that it somehow was a, a danger to navigation. President-elect Trump took a very hardline position on that. So by the time it came around to February and President Trump wanted certain trade issues and wanted progress on North Korea, all of a sudden, Xi Jinping was his best friend. 
I don't think President Trump is, I don't think he's bamboozled by President Xi's protestations of friendship and cooperation. But he knows how to leverage that into uh, a commitment. And the Chinese have never seen the president do this before, where the, where the Chinese say one thing, President Trump says, the Chinese promised me everything. And now if the Chinese don't give him everything, he says, the Chinese stabbed me in the back. With uh, North Korea, that early part of this year, you'll find that uh, we had this great opening relationship with North Korea. And um, when Xi Jinping, uh, Kim Jong-un, flew to Dalian and had a meeting, and then Xi Jinping flew to Pyongyang and had a meeting, and then Xi Jinping then took the train to Beijing and had another meeting, and then shows up in, in, uh, in Singapore and basically doesn't come through on his promises. President Trump says personally, he says, the Chinese are stabbing me in the back. The Chi- this is the Chinese doing. And that, the Chinese have never seen this, this before. Mm. They do it all the time. But um, so I think as far as Taiwan's concerned, President Trump sees Taiwan as leverage in a way that no other uh, American administration has, has seen Taiwan as leverage. That's not a bargaining chip, but it means leveraging our relationship with Taiwan up and up and up until China gives us what we want. And if China gives us what we want, then we'll sort of keep it at that level until China reneges again, and then we'll lever it up and up and up again. So last summer, when the Chinese were interfering in the North Korean issue, all of a sudden you had the White House issue a statement on China's Orwellian nonsense on, oh, with all on, the uh, commercial with all the commercial uh, flights pressure, on Taiwan, right? And then right after the the I, what was it the uh, the Salvadorians broke relations with the Republic of China, you'd never saw this before. It's the true. president the president with, uh, with re- recalled three ambassadors to discuss where we were going to go with these countries that uh, weren't going to listen to us regarding Taiwan, um, and I think the Chinese got the message. But they still didn't believe it. And I think, I think what you see now, we've, we've seen the, the most substantive expansion of U.S.-Taiwan relations in the last 40 years in this past year. And I think, uh, I think the president is satisfied that this is an effective uh, leverage. Right, to getting through to China. and Getting through to so, China. So do you think that this means, going back to our first question, that China will um, meet all the demands of the U.S. in, in this well, U.S. I, trade I, issue? This is another... President Trump, I'm not sure, is interested in China meeting our demands. Really? I think what President Trump is, is he wants China to show itself as a hostile, aggressive economic power that is damaging the U.S. economy. He doesn't want China to, to meet any demands. Well, then what's the good of that, though? Doesn't he want China because, to change, because right? He, no, because he wants to rebuild America's manufacturing and industrial infrastructure. And you can't do that with China dominating the global resource markets. China's the world's biggest uh, trading power. China's the world's biggest manufacturing power by a great margin. Um, the United States is finding itself, and he realizes this more than anybody, with a dwindling industrial infrastructure that cannot be rebuilt without a full buy-in 
by the U.S. Congress and the U.S. electorate. And I, this is what he ran for president on two years ago, which is, I'm going to rebuild America's industrial base. I'm going to bring jobs back from overseas to the United States. And one of the things that really has enraged him in the last two weeks is the idea that the Chinese are selling Buicks into the United States market with General Motors then saying, we're going to close our factories in, the, in America and either just stop selling those things altogether or move the factory factories to... Uh, to China? Uh, no, to, to Mexico. To the idea that the Chinese now have an open, you know, open entry to U.S. auto markets where the, the United States doesn't have it it's just that, that's ridiculous. It, it is, is ridiculous. It, it just sends him around the bend, right. and he's he's using Taiwan, I think, in this context as leverage, and he doesn't want, like I say, he doesn't want China to really come through. He, in fact, what he wants China to do is to backstab him. He he wants China to show that it's not a reliable partner, and so we'll see. I don't. I think China is not in a position to to come through on all of its promises made at the G20. We'll see what happens, but um, you, heard it, you heard it here first. So. <laughs> well, thanks so much, John, for your thoughts. Very insightful and interesting. Um, thanks for being on our show. I've been speaking with a renowned expert on Taiwan and China, John Tasik. He's the director of the Future Asia Project at the International Assessment and Strategy Center in Washington. I'm Natalie So. Thanks for tuning in to Taiwan Today. Welcome to Live from Taipei. I'm Charlie Starrer. At our Taipei Story Slam event on October the 25th, held as always at the Sappho Live Jazz Bar, the theme of the evening was Where the Hell Am I? The winner for the month was Curtis Starkey from the United States with this story of an evening quite literally spent in hell. Oh, please. Uh, <clears throat> 1999. Um, was an interesting year in a Christian household because uh, most people were worried about like Y2K. Um, I don't know what was supposed to happen on Y2K. I don't really remember. But our family was preparing for um, the rapture. And uh, it sounds funny now, but my family kind of took it seriously. And it's a lot easier than preparing for Y2K. People were buying canned goods and preparing for like everything going into failure. But with the rapture, you just, if you're a believer, you you don't have to deal with the earth anymore. And then everyone else is left behind. So. Um, this was happening at a time when I was uh, I was kind of losing my faith, and so I thought um, this is a really bad time to be losing my faith because at the chance that this does happen, I'm going to be left behind or go to hell, and I don't want that to happen. Uh, so I need to fix that. And I had about six months when I started panicking uh, until 2000 happened, because of course the rapture was going to happen on that day. But as 2000 rolled around, as 
the end of the year rolled around in 1999, I still didn't feel like I was actually a good Christian. Like I knew what it was like to be a good believer, a good faithful person, and I didn't feel it anymore. I thought I was just a fraud and an imposter and I wasn't going to make it in time. Uh, and I, you know, this is going to suck. So December 31st rolled around and at my church every year we had a thing where we prayed in the new year. We stood in a circle and we talked about the things that we were thankful for that year and then thankful for the next year. And so um, as there were like 10 seconds left in the year, uh, they started the countdown and I thought, I looked around and I thought, all these people are going to be gone uh, in 10 seconds and I'm going to be stuck here at my church, you know, huge church and uh, I mean, it's going to be very embarrassing because I'm at church and I'm left behind. Um, and like one second left and then I, I looked around, I really didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, I was 11 years old, so maybe, I don't know, but everybody was still there. Nothing happened. Uh, and I was like, okay. But, of course, you know, there's different time zones of midnight. And so I legitimately, like the next midnight, I was, I, I had another countdown in my mind as everyone else was relaxed, you know. And then and the next 2 a.m., 3 a.m., and, and it happened for about eight more hours, and then the world was officially 2000. But um, then I felt like a terrible person for the next couple of years. Uh, I, I dreamed about going to hell. Like, I dreamed about burning and uh, being tortured and uh, eternal damnation and, and legitimately bad dreams for, for a long time after that. And then I, uh, I thought, like, I'm destined to go to hell. And, uh, and then summer camp rolled, summer church camp rolled around, like, two years later. I was, like, tw uh, 13, maybe. And uh, we had this church camp in our small city, uh, which people went to every year. And uh, this was, like, the last year that we were able to go as 13-year-olds, because after that, there was kind of no more church camp. So it was a big deal. Uh, it was about a week long. They prepared a lot of cool activities, and it was a really fun week. And part of me thought, this is kind of my last chance to uh, maybe steer back into going to heaven again. Maybe, maybe I can fix that train that's uh, headed toward hell right now. Um, but it just kind of wasn't working. And the last day rolled around of church camp. It was an emotional day. A lot of people getting baptized and uh, everything that happens at church camp um, and interesting songs and everything. And then they, uh, they started calling people in the audience. They started pointing to people and saying, come here, come here. And uh, they, I was one of the people. And uh, they called me into the, into the back, into the backyard or something, and there were about 50 of us, and they lined us up, and they said, uh, you know why you're here. And uh, we, none of us, there was no relation. We didn't know why we were there. And uh, they started talking to us. Their, their tone changed, like they were drill sergeants. They said, uh, all of you have made very bad decisions. There's a reason you're here. You should know why you're here. You've made bad decisions today, this week, and previously in your life. And we're going to have to do something about that. And uh, I thought of, back to the, the first day. I uh, threw TP on my on my camp counselor's uh, dorm, uh, and I thought maybe that's why I'm here. But all these 50 people didn't help me TP, so I don't know. I don't know why we're here. But um, they they walked us uh, in a line. They said, "Follow us into this." Uh, we walked through this corridor, and we walked through this building. And they pointed to a room, and they said, "Look in. Look into this room." And they pulled up a curtain, and we looked inside of the room. And inside of the room were a bunch of people. Uh, there was a disco ball, and there was a bunch of loud music playing, and people were like laughing and holding cake, and uh, playing bags. And it seemed like they're having a really good time. And then they they uh, they closed the curtain, and they said, "You'll never ever be able to enjoy anything like this for the rest of your life because of your decisions." And we, <laughs> what did we do? <laughs> and I saw one of the other guys who helped me teepee in there. Why is he? He's eating cake. What, you know. So uh, they walked us into this very like regimented line, uh, and they walked us to the middle of this cafeteria where uh, there was like two doors in the bottom of the cafeteria, uh, like basement doors, metal doors that they opened up, and they said, go down. And we went down the, these stairs one by one. Uh, I don't know why. None, none of us said no, but we just went down the stairs. 
and it was really dark. It was a dark basement. We went down to the basement, and it was very dark. We could barely see. In one corner of the room, there was like this candle that was a really big flame candle, like a fake candle. It looked like a big flame. Uh, I thought like the haunted house or something. What is this? And then uh, we could. It was, it was, there were clearly speakers with fake screaming happening. Uh, and um, it was it was freezing in there, and it was pitch black. And they sat us down. Well, we first walked a bunch of circles as if we were I don't know what we were doing, punished for something. And then they sat us down, and they said, "Welcome to hell." And uh, <laughs> what? You know, I don't know why we're here. And they said, uh, "Now, first the first rule is you cannot talk, you can't ask questions." Uh, and they, they they had they started carrying these like it was really hard to see, but they were carrying these like fake pitchforks. And uh, you know my dream was coming true, like it was actually in hell. And they had these pitchforks, and if anybody tried to talk, they threw like colored pencils and uh, markers. I don't know why they had art supplies, but they were throwing things at people that were were not hurt them, but uh, you know still they were throwing things. And they were walking around in circles and hurling insults at everyone and saying why we were there. And they they, they held a flashlight to each person and talked to each person individually. And I would point out something about their face or their personality that stated why they were a very bad person. Like for me, they were just like, they looked at my face and they said, you're clearly a sinner and you clearly belong here. And uh, after they did that for long enough, we were, you know, down, down there for a while, pitch black, no talking, we kind of started buying into it. Like maybe this wasn't a simulation hell. Um, like maybe we really did something wrong. Uh, they didn't say it was a game, you know, they, were, they had these straight faces and we did do some, I did some bad things in my life, I don't know, I felt like I said some cuss words before that, I don't know, maybe they caught me, I don't know. So um, they made us feel as if we were very bad people. But I tried to kind of change the mood because I was thinking about this girl who I wanted to ask to campfire. It's a really big deal to ask a girl you like to campfire on the last night, but she was up in heaven. And so I told my friend, you know, Ashley's up in heaven, I can't ask her. And I was trying to make a joke in the, in the light of the, the moment, and the hell, the hell people, the hell crew did not like that. They came over and they said, excuse me, why do you think you have the right to speak? And they called me out. They said, we're going to make an example of you. And I'm not great, you know. And they put me in the middle of the room. I could barely see. And they said, uh, start singing like a girl. <laughs> I said, what, what do you mean? That's, why are you asking me to do that? I'm not going to do that. And they, but everybody was like, at this point, people were scared. They're like, just do it, just do it. And uh, so I said, okay, I'll, I'll do this. So I started singing Mary Had a Little Lamb in my normal voice, because at that time, I, my voice hadn't changed yet. So um, it was a pretty high voice. But And then they said, okay, that's good. After a few bars, they sat me back down. I was really nervous and to break the silence to make another joke. I thought I was being so funny. I said, uh, I said uh, to my friend, I, I tripped when I was sitting down and I said, wow, where in hell am I? And I thought it was, like, that's a really big deal for a Christian church camp kid to say because you're not supposed to cuss. So I was like fake cussing, but I was actually in hell. So I, I thought it was so funny. But the person, the person did not like it at all. They said, are you serious? And they came back over and blindfolded me. And, and I said, that's, I can't see anyway, so it really doesn't matter. And they said, shut up, stop talking. Um, and so then they finished that. At the end, uh, we were allowed to speak to each other and explain why we thought we were in hell. And that included, like, people were actually crying and holding each other. And people were talking about serious things that they'd done in real life. Like, I watched some pornography. I did this and that. Like, very serious things. And, uh... Finally, we got out of there. Obviously, the goal of that was a simulation hell trying to make us feel very bad, and it, it definitely worked. Um, and it's, it's interesting that I spent years of my life worrying that I was going to go to hell, and then I actually did. I spent the night there, you know. And then it turns out that Ashley ended up going to a campfire with a guy from heaven. You know, I can't compete with the heaven guys, um, and so I didn't get to ask her to campfire. And... Uh, Yes, so I would advise any of you to make better decisions so you don't end up in real hell or simulation hell. So.
You're listening to Radio Taiwan International. Write us at PO Box 123-199. Taipei, Taiwan, ROC. ROC. Newsmakers, a look at Taiwan's movers and shakers. Kaohsiung mayor-elect Han Guoyu is set to take office in late December. The opposition Kuomintang or KMT politician won 54% of the vote in last month's local elections. Han's resounding victory dealt a heavy blow to the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, as he ended the DPP's dominance in the southern city for 20 years. Han was trailed far behind by DPP's Chen Ximai at 45% only. When the KMT failed Han to represent the party in May, few outside of the party had heard of him. The number of people who had any hopes for his victory was probably even fewer, even within the KMT. It was a race that one analyst called Mission Impossible. A local magazine called Han a jobless loser who was out of work for 11 years on and off. So how did the former lawmaker manage to win public support with limited resources? What's more, how did he rise so quickly that even the term Han Storm was coined to refer to his sudden popularity? Some analysts attributed Han's victory to public dissatisfaction with the government's policies, ranging from pension reform, labor rights to stagnant wages. Others said Han is not a typical KMT candidate. He projected an image of an average Joe who is practical and friendly. Han's emphasis on the economy was also a plus. During the election campaign, Han referred to himself as an old, ugly, and bald vegetable vendor. That's because he was manager of the Taipei Agricultural Products Marketing Corporation for about four years. He stepped down from the job last year in order to run for KMT chair, though he was defeated. Han's use of simple language also caught attention. His slogan was, Kaohsiung is both old and poor, and he promised to make the city rich. Han Guoyu was born in the military dependence village in what is now New Taipei in 1957. His father came from China's central Henan province. Han has a bachelor's degree in English literature and a master's degree in East Asian studies. His MA dissertation on cross-strait aviation talks from the perspectives of China's political warfare was published in 1988. programs here today at Radio Taiwan International. I'm Natalie So, back here with Shirley Lin and Jake Chen. And we're going to leave you with one more thing. Well, I think Taiwan is making some strides in the terms of uh, 
equality or consciousness for women's rights. And recently, Taiwan got nominated for quite a few gender impact awards. Tell us about this, Shirley. Right. Taiwan has nine activities and reports on the list of nominations for the gender impact awards. Only lagging behind the United States with 12 nominations. Oh, wow. Yeah. And this was um, started by Womany. It's woman and then adding a Y at the end. Um, this was uh, a social media in Taiwan that's established in 2011 with a focus on gender issues and female consciousness. And actually last year, it was the first time I presented the awards, but this is the second year. And so the awards are divided into seven categories, like the best gender report, the best practice for gender diversity, the best gender arts design, the best gender corporation, the best mass communication, the best gender social campaign, and Asian highlights. So this year, a total of 44 gender equality events and reports have made it into the nomination list, including Taiwan's Me Too movement and also India's campaign leading to the scrapping of a 12% tax on sanitary pads. And so um, the nine Taiwanese nominations on the list include also the installation of the country's first comfort woman statue in Tainan, which actually also comes to the museum, and the initiation of a referendum on same-sex marriage. Now, uh, a member of the jury panel, uh, Taiwan Coalition Against Violence, said that the year 2018 has seen a great achievement towards gender equality and there have been calls for reflection on gender-based violence from the entertainment and media industries, as well as the public and private sectors from all over the world. So um, basically, the awards, the winners of the awards are going to be set uh, on December 20th. And um, and then we'll find out. So that's that's interesting. I mean, I mean, we do feel uh, you know a lot more consciousness and and uh, focus on women issues and gender equality issues lately. Jake, I know you're from China originally. What do you think about the women's consciousness uh, in Taiwan compared to China? Um, I think it's handled in a very different way. Uh, people in Taiwan are are very uh, vocal. Understandably so, but uh, and I hope I'm wrong because I, I recently um, researched several uh, material for the class I teach. You know, to to talk about women's issues and gender equality issues. The raising uh, there's often a gap between the raising of awareness of certain issues uh, to actually making a change. You know, the recent referendum, for example, is a great example, and I hope it didn't turn out this way. But anything related to uh, gender equality and, and LGBTQ education was overwhelmingly voted against for uh, across Taiwan. One. So that reveals that people are still, what's the word, traditional or conventional or whatever you call it when it comes down to issues like that. I mean, more people are talking about it, but not as many people nearly have sort of shifted their mindset. Um, China is a bit different in that like gay movies, like LGBTQ themed movies become a thing like in mid 90s. So fairly early. You know, so this sort of entertain more and more people in entertainment have been speaking about it. So it's it's infused in the public consciousness in in quite a different way. So I say, you know, both sides have a way to go. Yeah, I think Taiwan is really more open to this um, these topics lately because um, there are these annual like movie festivals oh, that actually festivals yeah, and, and that actually focus on LGBT issues, you know, and topics like that. And um, and I know of a friend. Um, actually, I just interviewed her recently. Um, she studied arts in the States and then because she became friends with some feminist artists there that uh, when she came back to Taiwan not knowing what she was going to do she decided to start the, you know, Taiwan's very own Women's March 
which is already a very international event, you know, uh, like in Tokyo and other countries too. But uh, the, although the first one that they organized last year had only about less than 100 people, but this year they attracted 400. Great. Yeah. Well, Taiwan is definitely a free society, and all these topics are not taboo here. Definitely open, and and uh, we hope to see more and more, um, you know, equality, right, of mm. all peoples in Taiwan. Um, well, that's all we have for you today on Radio Taiwan International. I'm Natalie So, and I hope that you will join us again tomorrow. for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.